0: so much. I'm super excited um, to be kicking off our new Sounds Familiar series. Before I get started, actually, can we just give a quick round of applause to Isaiah on the drums? How how good is he? I'm going to embarrass him for a quick second. He's one of my year 10 students. How cute, hey? He's killing it on the drums. He's doing an incredible, incredible job. We're so proud of you and so lucky to have you with us, Isaiah. Can you guys give him another big round of applause? So good. So good. I'm excited to see what he'll then like you know be doing when he's in his 20s what um but before we get stuck into it um i've named this uh, i've titled this message the first message of this series do you see it and this is all about diving deeper into scripture it's the sort of stuff that i really really love and who knows that the first service was just getting us warmed up right oh oh mate um and so uh, before i get stuck into it i want you to know yes i am a teacher but <laughs> there's something about me that i need to confess um I cannot, I'm terrified of little children. So I teach teenagers, I am terrified of five and six year olds, right? And it reminded me of this, when I was writing this message, Um, it reminded me of a time when I was in my third year placement, just actually down the road at Papakura Normal School. Shout out to Sarah Kent. She was the most incredible um, associate teacher that taught me a lot. So I dedicate this to her. This is just a quick story of a life lesson that Miss Kent taught me in 2013. Cast your eyes back, let me paint the picture for you. Me, 21-year-old Shemaine, right? I am the youngest sibling in my family. I have not grown up around children, never changed a diaper in my life, don't know what to do when a child cries. Um, so, so I get placed with what year level? For my most intense, my longest uh, school placement in uni, year one and two students, right? Year one and two students, five and six-year-olds. Breathe, breathe deep, Shemaine, you can do this. So I get there um, and Um, Miss Kent, she taught me this life lesson. We were uh, running a PE lesson one day out in the the field there by the army base. And the kids were running around playing a rendition of tag that they like to call poison stick. So spoiler alert, you have a stick and then when you tag the person with the stick that person then becomes poisoned and has to go and tag someone on to pass the poison on. All fun and games, they say, until a five-year-old gets tagged. It was like a slow motion horror scene. Six-year-old boy, poison stick in hand, five-year-old girl, five metres ahead of him. It was like slow motion. Tagged her, right? poison. Everybody runs the opposite direction. This five-year-old girl is then inconsolable. She starts weeping straight away. I wasn't expecting it. I was like, they're playing tag, that's fine. Um, starts crying, all fun and games, until a five-year-old cries. I freak out. I panic. I don't know what to do. <laughs> so I start to, as I start to walk over to her, tears streaming down her face. She thinks she's about to die. She took this very literally. And so she... <laughs> As I'm walking over to her, I'm going, okay, why don't they teach us how to unpoison children in university? What do I do here? So I'm walking, and I go, three, three steps, three steps. Child psychology, you can do this. You took a course in this. I'm walking over, and I'm going, okay, um, stay calm. Stay calm when they're distressed. Get down to their eye level so that you make them feel known and seen and stuff. Yep, I can do that. And then ask closed questions if you want to find out information. Okay, so I get there, and I do all these things. I come down to her level, and I say... You know, in a a calm voice, honey, it's all going to be okay. I'm sure it didn't actually hit you. Uh, You know, it probably didn't scrape you that hard. You know, I start to rationalize with a five-year-old. Great idea. Whose idea was that? Uh, Start to rationalize with a five-year-old, and I start to go, you know what? (laughs) You know what? (sighs) You are the toughest girl that I know. This is like week one, right? (laughs) You are the toughest girl that I know. You are probably the toughest five-year-old in that class. Would you agree with me? I'm trying to coerce her here. And then she's going... This is what I get hit with, right? <laughs> Just the entire time. <laughs> and so I'm trying to ask her questions, idiot. I'm trying to ask her questions and I'm going, "Okay, um so who tagged you?" Closed questions, keep it simple. Who tagged you? And she goes <laughs> I didn't know what to do so I just I stayed I tried to keep her calm and then Sarah saw me panicking she walked over to me with this look in her eye right she just glanced at me like a a rookie Shemaine step aside (laughs) so then she gets down on her level right I did that I did that don't know why it didn't work for me gets down on her level and then she says to her eye contact calm voice did that one too she asks the magic question I didn't know that one uh she goes honey, 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 do you want me to cure you with my magic pen? I was like, is this, a, is this a book that I didn't read? Is this the memo that I didn't get? Why didn't they teach us this at uni? And then so she's going, do you want me to cure you with my magic pen? And I'm like, I've tried. <laughs> I've tried talking her down from that tree. Like, not going to work. She's, she's irrational. She's not going to listen to you. And then the tears just switch off. She goes, you know what? All I need to do with this magic pen is I need to tap you on the shoulder three times and then the cure is yours. All of the poison is gone. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh, good, good, good luck. You know, I've, I've tried consoling her for all of about 10 minutes. And so she's absolutely hyperventilating, stops crying altogether. And then she just goes, yes, yes, I want the cure. And then she takes off her little lid of the pen. She taps one, two. And I'm not even kidding, waterworks completely switch off, not a single tear in sight. And she had just said to her, all she said was, let me tell you a story about my pen. It doesn't work if you are crying, right? Doesn't work if you are crying. So the little girl stops crying altogether, gets tapped on the shoulder three times, and then frolics off into the sunshine to play another round of tag, right? As Sarah and I are then walking back to the classroom, she says to me, oh, Shemaine, The golden rule here is if you cannot rationalize with them, if you cannot rationalize with them, just tell them a story. Just tell them a story. And it wasn't until I was actually writing this message that I realized, quite how biblical this, uh, this piece of advice was, right? Um, I don't think she intended it to be biblical, but it was indeed. Uh, Jesus actually, with his followers, when he walked uh, and ministered for those three years of his, uh, of his ministry, it says in uh, Mark chapter 4 verse 34, it says that Jesus would not say anything to them without using a parable parables are simply stories they are illustrations that Jesus painted to make sense of heavenly concepts but in a worldly application so he made sense of heavenly things but in a worldly application and he always told stories essentially Jesus quite like my associate teacher Sarah um, he understood that if he were to try and uh, make sense to something heavenly to somebody who was irrational he would be wasting his time And so what did he do in his years of ministry? Instead of then uh, trying to, in those three years, jam-pack crusades and this, that, and the other, he wasn't necessarily doing all of those things. A, A vast majority of his time was spent sitting with people making sense and telling them stories. I find that quite uh, intriguing. You see, these four uh, these stories are found in the four gospels uh, in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? Um, this Bible that we have is a very, very special book. Not only is it uh, the most purchased book every year, not only is it the most gifted book every year, but it is also intriguingly the most stolen book every year. Um, it is also the <laughs> most illegally smuggled book every year. Um, quite interesting, and this has been ongoing for years and years, but the my favorite thing about this Bible of ours is that it is by far the most historically accurate text known to mankind. Not only is it just a religious book for Christians, but scientists, uh, historians, and atheists, the strongest atheists in the world alike, acknowledge the historical accuracy of the words within these books. And so I was quite intrigued when I was reading up about parables that over one-fifth of Jesus's time in ministry, the the three short years that he spends with uh, his people performing miracles, over one-fifth of that time was actually spent wording these things into parables, into stories essentially to make sense of these things. You see, for fishermen, he would use parables uh, that concerned fishing nets, so he would make sense of their personal experience. For the wealthy, he would use um, a parable that was about money, about power. Um, For the farmers to understand things about heaven, he would use parables that were concerning um, weeds or vineyards or sheep, and so they knew exactly what he was talking about when when he would relate these things to the kingdom of heaven. I quite like that parables were Jesus' teaching choice um, when he was with his followers because it's not uh, lecturing them. It's a simple story and often they only take up a short passage. He's not lecturing them. He's not condemning them. He's not sitting with them saying, this is what you're doing wrong. He sat with them and told stories that he could connect with his people. What parables actually tell us about the heart of God is that he values connection with you. He values connection with each and every one of you and so that's what I love about these. Now if these parables were deemed worthy what I uh, reckon is that these parables then there must be so much more to them than meets the eye. If they are worthy enough to go in such a historically accurate divinely inspired book that we then read thousands of years later These parables must have so much more to them than meets the eye. And so what I want to do uh, is just read to you from uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12 in the NIV. It says this, when he, and this is Jesus that we're talking about, when he was alone, uh, the 12 and the others around him asked him about these parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of heaven, note that word, the secret of the kingdom of heaven, has been given to you. The kingdom of God, sorry, has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is told in parables. So that, and this is a a prophecy that he then quotes that is from the book of Isaiah that was given to the prophet um, Isaiah over 700 years before Jesus was even born. He quotes this and it comes true through his teaching. Uh, So that they uh, they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding otherwise they might turn and be forgiven you see i love that jesus actually refers to parables as being a secret a secret of the kingdom of heaven and often if somebody has a secret right you you know that there's something about it that you need to figure out there's something about it that i don't yet know because it's a secret but then you're not going to go to somebody else if you want to know that that person's secret right that doesn't really make sense if you want to know a secret you go to the secret keeper And so in this sense, um, I love that Jesus actually thought about telling these parables, not only to make sense of things for his followers, but also to conceal things from people who weren't yet ready to hear the word. There were two distinct purposes of these, and they were two things, to conceal and also to reveal. So the first one that we're going to dive into here is that he used these parables to reveal. He revealed heavenly truths in uh, worldly analogies, like I was going through before. They revealed um, different things about the kingdom of heaven. They revealed different things about the grace of God. They revealed different things about how fallen man can be, about how messed up society kind of got at the time, but it always made connections to the people of his day. So they revealed things about them that the people could relate to, which I thought was quite cool. The next... uh, purpose of these parables as was uh, was to conceal and so concealing the heavenly truth actually and this quite intrigued me about them because whenever you think about parables you think oh yeah cool god told stories to help people make sense of heaven but then he actually this had a double meaning here is that he told stories to make sense to people, but then if people didn't accept him, those stories actually concealed the truth that was actually in them. And so I thought that was quite interesting um, that when people can read a parable, they can relate to the shallow side of it, but never actually see the heavenly that's beneath the surface. And so um, in short, Jesus would reveal those mysteries of heaven to his believers, but then to the people that didn't acknowledge who he was, he actually concealed those mysteries all in the same parable. Um, You may have heard of uh, the phrase, it is possible to see, but not notice. It is possible to see but not notice. And so in a second, what I wanna do is I want to show you a video uh, that's an illustration of this. This video, if you have seen it before, do not give it away. Thank you very much, people who were in the, sur- the first service. Um, this video is, uh, I've shown this to multiple people, and the vast majority of them always get the answer wrong. Okay? I want you to get your thinking brains on. It is going to test your counting abilities, okay? So lean in, watch the screen, and see if you can get the correct answer. Go for gold. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But Did you see the moonwalking bear? It is easy to miss something you're not looking for. Did you guys see the moonwalking bear? Did you see it the first time? Don't lie to me. Good, good, I got you. Who got the number 13? Yeah, you got the right amount of counts. That's good. So many people guessed 12. I did this on one of my year nine classes, and a lot of them said 12. Um, but I tricked you there. It is possible then to see what is going on, but actually not notice what's happening in that exact same picture. And so um, what I want to do is I want to break down So maybe... Uh, Familiar passages of scripture for you, maybe not so familiar. Um, you may have heard of some parables that are preached quite often, uh, like the Good Samaritan, uh, where he then helps out the person uh, who is on the side of the road who's not from his town or his religion. Um, he, you may have heard about the uh, Good Shepherd, where he leaves the flock of ninety-nine to go after the one sheep that goes missing. Um, you may have heard of the parable of the Prodigal Son, um, where he goes and spends, he wastes his entire inheritance on doing things that uh, satisfy his desires, but then he comes back to a gracious embrace from his father. These parables are all quite often spoken about, but what I want to do this morning with us is I actually want to break down three parables or concepts in scripture, three illustrations that Jesus paints that aren't necessarily so popular. The first up is the mustard seed illustration. Um, If you read in your notes, the notes are on the Elam app. You can read along with me or just listen up, um, or it should be up on the screen. Brilliant. In Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 32, it says this. Again, he, and this is Jesus speaking, he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? He's telling parables again. Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Something about Scripture that I really love is that it will always have, with these parables, it will always have an obvious element and then a concealed element. So there's always something that you can take from it straight away and apply, and then something that is far deeper that Jesus is actually speaking to his believers that were listening. And so in that sense, what we can take from this is you've probably heard the popular phrase, you know, oh, just just have faith the size of a mustard seed. If you've been in church circles long enough, you uh, if you ever doubt something, I'm sure you've heard this phrase, right? Oh, just have faith have faith the size of a mustard seed Um, and so the size of a mustard seed fun fact if you didn't realize it is the tiny it's about the size of uh, if you grab a ballpoint pen from the chair in front of you um, it's about the size of a ballpoint at the end of that pen right mustard seeds are tiny but they can actually grow just one of those seeds can grow to over uh, to between eight to ten feet tall right? They're actually plants, but they're often uh, mistaken for trees because they are so big. So the nature of what people then apply here is that when you plant such a small seed, such a little thing that you may do, uh, when you plant a small seed in faith, it can grow uh, far beyond what you actually, uh, you know, far beyond what you are doing. Um, And so, in that sense for you, you could take away from this, you could take away the application that um, what is my next step? What is my seed of my mustard seed that I need to plant here? Is it maybe to invite a family member to church? Is it to, uh, to be honest about your weekend when you go back to work tomorrow and someone asks you how your weekend was? Uh, to maybe say to somebody who's having a difficult time, hey, I'm praying for you, or even harder to actually stop and pray for them. That one's difficult, um, but it's so powerful. All of these different things are such small, seemingly costless things that are just a small step of faith that actually could plant a seed that then grows to far beyond what you could ever imagine. Um, If you need this reminder and you'd find it handy, I've actually got a little table at the end, uh, at the back of the room by the double doors, and it's got a little tray of mustard seeds there. So feel free to go through and have a look and grab a couple. Maybe you could keep it at your desk or you could, I don't know, put it next to your wardrobe or whatever it is that you're often um, seeing every day. Just as a reminder of actually taking that small step of faith, you can help yourself to those. Now context-wise, what we have to look at is actually what is being revealed here? What is Jesus actually saying to the people who are listening? You've got to look at two things. What is the question that the people were asking Jesus when he painted that picture, right? When he talked about the mustard seed, what is the question that people asked? And then what was Jesus's focus in explaining the illustration? So you look at the question and in that verse, you could see that the question that is asked there is what is the kingdom of God like? So that's the context we need to think about the mustard seed and what is the kingdom of God like? And then Jesus actually focuses not on um, anything else, but on the exponential growth of such a tiny seed. So when you think about what the kingdom of God is like, you then look at the fact that it started so small over 2000 years ago with little baby Jesus born in a manger. And it then grew to something that now spans across the entire world, every nation, millions of Christians, and just like it says at the end of that passage, um, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. It was revealing the fact that the mustard seeds growth is a picture of the church expanding, that they didn't actually, that they couldn't comprehend at the time. I find that quite beautiful. The next one that we can dive into is the eye of the needle illustration. This is one of my favorites. I love when the Bible talks about money. Um, to summarize, what happens in this passage is that uh, the rich there's a rich young man that then approaches Jesus. He comes and he falls at his feet and he says, good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to inherit eternal life? That's his question, right? What can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus then says to him, these are my commandments, follow them. And then uh, this boy then replies, boy, young man, this young man replies, "Um, I have followed those all of my life. I've followed your teachings. Now what can I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven, uh, to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, ah, okay, I want you He could see that obviously he had a lot of money. He says to him, I want you to sell all of your possessions and give your money to the poor please don't go and do that, okay? (laughs) That is not something that Jesus necessarily is saying to everybody in this passage, so don't read it like that. I have heard about people who have done that before um, because they take the passage so literally. But there are things that are being revealed and there are things that are being concealed in this scripture. It's not necessarily literal because Jesus is actually seeing the stronghold that this young man has. He's going, no, no, God, I've obeyed you my whole life, but what can I do now to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And essentially, what God is saying to him here is that it's not possible for you to do anything. It's not your thing to do. It was my thing to do. And so it's quite cool that um, when he actually talks about this... um, passage of scripture being that the eye of the needle is um, what the camel needs to fit through in order to get to heaven. People often conclude, they walk away from this passage going, oh okay, so being rich is evil, having too much money. No, no, you can't do that as a Christian. You cannot be rich and a Christian. Not going to happen. Or that rich people cannot go to heaven right? It's impossible for a rich person to go to heaven. In order to be a Christian, you must be poor. So that's what people can often take away. I've heard these things, and I've been challenged on this passage of scripture before, is that um, this is what Jesus means. What do you think then? Um, Another, so that is a very obviously concealed thing that they've taken very literally from the parable, that they haven't actually looked at what Jesus was revealing to his believers. And so another somewhat concealed thing that they would have understood at the time is that the eye of the needle uh, was a small gate that was actually in the, um, the city of Jerusalem. It, there was a gate that guarded the entire city and there was a big passageway that they would walk through during the daytime hours. And then after hours, there was a small gate that was referred to as the eye of the needle. So if any farmers returned to the city of Jerusalem after hours, they had to then squeeze their little camel through this eye of the needle in order to get into the city. Right, so in that day and time, in that day and age, they would have understood what the eye of the needle was, and they could have very well taken that then as the application that they would go away with. They would go, "Oh, okay. In order for this camel to get through that eye of the needle, what would actually have to happen is two things: the camel would have to be stripped of all of its, uh, the, of everything it was carrying, so all of its possessions, if you will. So the camel was stripped of everything, and then it would have to buckle its knees in order to fit underneath and duck under this gate, and." so essentially what people could have read this passage as is that a rich man can go to heaven, but it's a painful process of submitting, right? It's a painful process of submitting. But then if you actually look at what Jesus is revealing to his people here, that's also not it. That's quite a concealed interpretation of that. What Jesus was asked in this passage is, what can I do to inherit in, uh, eternal life and Jesus says to them actually his focus of this parable was that it's impossible it's impossible it's like a an, an camel going through the eye of the needle a little thread needle it's just as impossible as that and so this, this young rich man actually goes away from him saddened and he doesn't return because he held on to his money. And so in that sense, what we can actually see here is Jesus was saying, there is nothing that you can do. It doesn't matter how rich you are. If you're not willing to then submit to what I tell you to do rather than what you want to do, there's no way you're coming into heaven. And so it's quite an interesting thing here. Um, I think we forget that when we read about rich people in scripture, We often assume that it's not us, we assume that it's the millionaires and the billionaires of the world. Um, But it's an interesting statistic, let me read you this. Statistics say that if you have sufficient food, one thing, decent clothes, a roof over your head, and a reasonably reliable means of transport, you are among the top 15% of the world's wealthy. You were among the top 15% of the world's wealthy. We forget that this young rich man in Scripture could very well be representing you and I. He could very well be representing you and I. Um, Scripture talks about money more than it talks about heaven and hell combined. Jesus, this, wasn't, this wouldn't have been a, a mistake that was made by him, but Jesus actually saw the power that money can have over his people. He saw the grip that money could have and the way that it can control them. And what Jesus was actually revealing to his people here is the fact that, are you willing to obey me when I tell you to do something? It doesn't mean that in order to get into heaven, you have to sell your possessions. No, no. He's just saying, are you willing to obey me more than you care about your money? And that's a very, very um, interesting thing to look at. Like it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, you cannot serve two masters. Otherwise, you will love one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The final parable that I want to break down with you, last but not least, is the wineskins illustration. So wine was talked about a lot in the Bible. Uh, there was, they, they would grow their own wines in their vineyards. They would drink it at their celebratory festivals. Um, and funnily enough, Jesus' very first miracle centered around the use of wine, right? He provided wine at a wedding, and that was his first miracle. When he told the parable of the wineskins, he knew very well that the people, his audience, um, that were listening to him, they knew a whole lot about wine. They were very familiar with his analogy. Earlier in this passage, we see that Jesus was challenged. So this was the question essentially that he painted this picture for. He was challenged by um, a bunch of religious people who came to him and said, so um, why are your followers not fasting? When the Pharisees have followers and their followers are fasting, when John the Baptist has followers and their followers are fasting, why are your followers not fasting? And Jesus actually challenged that thought and he said to them, they are not fasting because there's no point to fast when I am with them. There's no point in fasting when I am present with them, teaching them these truths. And then so he actually, uh, he carried on to then explain that you, you can start fasting when I am taken away from you, but your your concentration right now needs to be on me and what I'm telling you. And so that was his answer to this. And the way that he then breaks it down um, is in the parable of the wineskins in Mark chapter two, verses 21 and 22. So follow along with me. It says this, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And here we go. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst, the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This could be quite confusing when you read it, right? It's quite difficult to interpret because nowadays all we really see is wine and bottles, right? I've never, to be honest, I've never really thought about how wine was uh, traveled, you know, how wine had traveled before. They don't always have wine and bottles back in biblical times. Um, And so I had never thought about that. I just went, oh, okay, cool, surely wine bottles, that's about it. And then, but in the context of this time, Jesus was speaking to the people about um, the way that they, and relating to the way that they would carry wine. So what they would do is that they would make, Make wineskins out of the animal, uh, the thick animal skin that they would use uh, when they sacrificed these animals. Nothing was wasted, right? So they would use the thick animal skin um, or the lining of the thick organs in the animal. Quite disgusting. <laughs> um, but they went through a thorough process of then stitching this lining and skin together um, and making it all uh, waterproof, okay? Uh, so that when the liquid, all of this wine was put into it and carried a- across different, um, you know, from. Uh, Place to place, vineyard to vineyard, um, the wine would obviously not leak from the wine skins. Um, sometimes the wine that they carried, because it's not in bottles, obviously, the wine that they carried would be 30 to 50 litres at a time. They would carry it in what looked like a massive backpack that you would then have to kind of put on and then tramp with, and that was 30 to 50 litres worth of wine. So obviously, with this wine skin and the weight of the wine inside it, the wine skin that it was contained in would stretch would stretch not only under the weight of the wine, but also during the fermentation process. It would take a long time for them to finish 50 litres of wine. Um, And so, the entire time it's fermenting, it's expanding inside the wineskins, and so the wineskin actually becomes a lot thinner, and it becomes stretched. So then, by the time the last drop of wine was poured out of the wineskin, this wineskin was then um, quite brittle. Um, what Jesus is saying in this parable here is he's saying you will not pour old, uh, sorry, new wine into old wineskins because then what would happen is that thinned out brittle wineskin that you'd pour new wine into would then expand and ferment and under that weight the, both of them, uh, the, the wineskin would break and both of them would be ruined. So people very much understood. They understood exactly what he was talking about in terms of transporting wine from place to place. They understood that it would be a dumb idea to put new wine into an old wineskin because you don't want it to go to waste. People looked at that, they got it, um, and that was the concealed application that they were quite happy to walk away with. But the believers at the time, they went, no, no, there must be more to this. And what Jesus actually talks about, the whole point of this parable, um, and Keys, you can join me now the whole point of this parable is the fact that Jesus was referring to himself as the new wine. You may be familiar with the old covenant and the new covenant in the Bible. The old uh, covenant was given to Moses. It was the 10 commandments that then Jesus, when he led his people out of uh, Egypt, he gave them the 10 commandments to uphold, right? That was the old covenant, but not only the 10 commandments, they also had 613 laws. 613 laws that are outlined in the book of Leviticus that they had to uphold and upkeep the entire time. This was a lot for them to bear. So they were obviously always sinning. So under the old covenant um, or just a covenant in general, the rule is, the golden rule of thumb is that blood is the atonement for sin blood is the atonement for sin. So the way that then, whenever they would sin, they would have to sacrifice animals. That's why the Old Testament has hundreds and hundreds of animal sacrifice ceremonies going on because people were constantly sinning. They were falling from grace and then coming back to Him, giving their atonement of blood and then they would be renewed. And so what Jesus actually was referring to in this passage is that I am the new wine that is fitting into your old wineskins. I can't be fit into religion. You cannot fit me into religion. You cannot fit my new covenant into what you know of the law. That is not what you are meant to do with me. And so the people saw him, but they didn't notice what he was teaching. They didn't notice the heavenly concepts at the time. And so Jesus was actually saying here, essentially, my new covenant is this, love God with all of your heart, your mind and your soul, and love people. Love God and love people. The people at the time, they didn't understand such radical grace. They didn't understand. They were only used to rules and regulations. They were used to having to uphold, to having to do the right thing, to having to look the right way, to having to be in the right place at the right time. Everything they did. These were the Pharisees that actually would challenge Jesus on everything that he did wrong. And Jesus was saying to them, no, no, I don't fit into your religious ways. I don't fit into your textbook Christianity. I am the new covenant and this is what I care about. Love God, love people love God and love people and so what Jesus is saying here let me read to you this final part once again he is the new wine no one pours new wine into old wineskins meaning the religion at the time otherwise the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined no they pour new wine into new wineskins Just like the way that the people at the time approached parables, they would have seen but not necessarily noticed what Jesus was doing. Church, let's not be like the Pharisees this morning. Let's not miss what God is doing amongst us. Let's not miss in Scripture what He's actually revealing to us and just be satisfied with the shallow uh, interpretation of what it is. I'd encourage you, pick something, dive deep, look at what Jesus is actually revealing to you. The nature of Scripture is that it speaks and it is divine every time. You could get something new out of scripture every time you return back to it. I've learned so much about parables this week because of that. But let's not just see this week, church. Let's notice. Let's notice what God is doing. Would you uh, close your eyes with me as I close in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are so gracious. We thank you for the new covenant that you have offered us. We thank you for the way that you spent time valuing your connection to your people. We thank you, God, for the great things that you have taught and for the beautiful things that you have um, been an example for us in God and the way that you rest and the way that you connect with people and the way that you make sense and the way that you teach. We pray, Father God, would you help us to notice you this week and not just see you, to not just be satisfied God with the watered down things that we may be here on stage or that we interpret from other people God but would you help us to press into what you are doing and in the word when we read it in our workplace in our schools whatever it may be that you are doing God in our families at home would you help us to see you and notice you too in Jesus name we pray amen